This interview of Wisdom from the Top was recorded in 2019. From Luminary Media and Belted Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Deborah Lee and Black Entertainment Television. It was very painful, and it took me by surprise. I grew up in the Black community. I care about the Black community. I'm a Harvard-educated lawyer. Why is, are these people out here, you know, protesting? And you know what I found out as a matter through that protest? That the buck stopped with me. How Deborah Lee learned to become a leader and then helped transform BET from a small-time cable channel into a powerhouse brand with more than $100 million in revenue. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Black entertainment television is such a cable TV stalwart today that it's almost hard to remember that back in its early days, it was revolutionary. When it launched in 1980, there was nothing like it. A television channel that would broadcast programming by and for African-American audiences. In the early 80s, MTV wouldn't play hip-hop or what was called urban music videos, so BET filled the gap. And that turned out to be a very good business move. Because over the next 20 years, BET would become a powerhouse. And eventually, when it was sold to Viacom for $3 billion, it would create the first self-made African-American billionaire in U.S. history, the founder of BET, Bob Johnson. Pretty soon after Viacom's acquisition, Bob's deputy, Deborah Lee, was tapped as the CEO of the company. And within a few years, she helped generate more than $100 million a year in revenue. Deborah had been with the company since its early days. At the time, she was fresh out of law school and looking to do something meaningful in the African-American community. She'd grown up an army brat and moved around a lot. And by the time she reached sixth grade in the mid-1960s, her family moved again from California to Greensboro, North Carolina. And when we moved to Greensboro, it was the mid-60s, and Greensboro was very, was still segregated. Uh, so that was the first segregated um, environment I had been in. Uh, because in the Army, things were, you know, categorized according to rank. And because my father was an officer, we lived in officer housing and, you know, went to the officer's club. And so they were very integrated environments. And so when I moved to Greensboro, all of a sudden there was a black side of town and a white side of town. We had our own doctors, our own lawyers, you know, there was a black bank. You know, it was a very well-developed community. And so for the first time ever in my life, starting in sixth grade, um, I went to an all-black school. 
Um, and I often say that's where my leadership really was forced upon me. How did how did that kind of spark it? What 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 were some of the things that you saw or experienced that began to kind of spark this desire to become a leader? Well, that's a, a great question. I think um, three things um, that I reflect on. Uh, one, the first day in um, my sixth grade class, I was elected president of the class. Um, and I think it was because I was the odd girl from <laughs> L.A. You know, not a lot of people <laughs> moved to Greensboro from L.A. <laughs> so that thrust me into a leadership position that I hadn't sought or expected. Um, I think the second thing was that Greensboro was the site of the sit-ins sure. at Woolworth's lunch counter. Now, that happened before uh, we moved to Greensboro, so I wasn't there during that time. But the city was really proud of of it. And the city was was proud of being a leader in the fight to end uh, segregation. So I think that kind of gave me a feeling that I was in an environment where you could make change or, you know, you were expected to try to make change. Um, and then I think the third is that going to an all-black school with great teachers, the teachers, uh, my parents, you know, people at church, um, they all expected us to do well and told us on a day-to-day -day basis we could be anything we wanted to be. Wow. Um, so it, it was all of that that really led me to believe, one, I could do anything I wanted to do, yeah. and two, I had to give back, try to find a way to help change the world. So you uh, you you went off to college to to Brown University, and when you got there, was that the, the thing that really was like motivating you? This idea to change the world, like did did you did you like get radicalized? Did did, did any of that happen happen to you? For sure. Um, when I was at Brown, it was I started in 1972, so it was the early 70s. Yeah. I had one of the biggest afros you've ever seen. <laughs> I worked very hard on it. <laughs> I thought of myself as very uh, militant, you know, within with constraints. But I thought of myself as as very liberal leaning. Sure. Um, I majored in Chinese communist ideology. Wow. I thought I had an interest in China, and I thought there may be another way other than capitalism. On the other hand, I was in the political science department, and I knew I was going to law school. So I couldn't be but so militant. It was always an interesting um, conflict in my life to want to change things quickly, but to want to work within the system. And so I felt you know, that was the best way for me to make change. <laughs> and I thought it was going to be through the legal system. Yeah. You thought, I'll become a lawyer, and that's how I'm going to change the system. Change it, right. Because I saw what Thurgood Marshall had done, what Constance Baker Motley had done. And then the other thing that I've always um, kind of had to deal with is I also have a creative side. Um, I love fashion. I love style. I love art. I love, you know, interior design. So I've, I had that side of me, too. Um, but one of the best things I did at Brown 
when I look back on it, is I went to my dean, my junior, my sophomore year, to say I wanted to do my junior year abroad mm. in China, since I had been studying um, Chinese yeah. politics. And he said, well, China's uh, closed at the time. And he said, how about Southeast Asia? So I did my study abroad, uh, my second semester junior year in Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, and then we ended up in Singapore. Mm. Um, so, you know, I think Brown and college did what they were supposed to do for me. You know, it showed me the world. It showed me different courses of study and uh, gave me a chance to grow up and, yeah. and try to figure out what I was going to do. So you, you eventually do decide to become a lawyer. You go to Harvard Law School. Yes. Um, and when you, when you graduated from Harvard Law School... What did you envision your life and career were going to be? Um, well, a lot of things happened at Harvard. First of all, I didn't really want to go there. Uh, and, you know, the environment was, is, was very hostile to women, to people of color. Uh, Boston was hostile. This was um, 76. The busing period, the, yeah. Yep, the busing, forced busing was going on. So there were, you know, lots of uh, skirmishes in Boston. We were told hmm. early on what neighborhoods not to go to, which, you know, even though wow. I was from the segregated South, no one ever told me I couldn't go to a neighborhood. I just didn't want to. And then I just didn't like um, the law. It just, I, you know, it just, I just did it, but I didn't like it. Hmm. I realized early on uh, the professors didn't want to talk about policy issues. They didn't want to talk about changing the world. They wanted to talk about the black letter law. And every time a student tried to bring up a policy issue or shouldn't this be changed, you know, they were shot down. So... By the end of first-year law school, I was very unhappy, and um, um, a student I knew from Harvard College suggested I apply to the Kennedy School, and that, you know, maybe government service was going to save me. Um, so that's what I did. I applied to Kennedy School. So second year, I went to Kennedy School, and then the third and fourth year, I did both schools, and I graduated with a, a JD and a Master's of Public Policy. So to answer your question, when I was graduating from Harvard, I had accepted a job with the Securities and Exchange Commission and huh. in their policy office, and that's where I thought I was going to go. And so my goal after going to the Kennedy School was to be assistant secretary of something. Um, yeah, to be in government. Right. Um, and then at the last minute, I got a clerkship through a judge I had clerked for while I was in school. And so I put the SEC on hold, still thinking I was going to go into government um, and move to D.C., clerked for a year. And then during that year, Ronald Reagan was elected. Yeah. So um, I ended up going to a law firm to hide out until the Democrats came back. So your idea after – so after law school, you went to work – for a law firm, but really, I guess it it wasn't really your long term goal to be a corporate lawyer, right? Right. In fact, it was it was anti everything I wanted to do. Yeah, I, I, I read <laughs> I read that when you really started there because I think that the, the firm was Steptoe um, Steptoe Johnson. Johnson. Um, that that in in your mind, like really, what your self image and your purpose 
that was in your mind was to do something that would significantly benefit the community that you came from, right? That 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 was really what you wanted to do, and and the idea was that you were going to figure out a way to give back to your community mm-hmm. somehow in government by by committing yourself to public service. Correct. Yes, that was the goal. Mm. But but it sounds like law firm life was not for you. No, it just wasn't fulfilling. Yeah. It's not what I wanted to do. And and I realized early on that I didn't want to make partner. Hmm. And uh, I thought I was still going to go into um, government at some point. Yeah. But after about five years at the firm, it was time to decide either I'm going to buckle down and work hard and make partner or it's time to leave. Hmm. And by that time, I had started doing communications law, which hmm. I really loved. Hmm. Um and I didn't even mind working for communications companies because I thought they were doing good things. Uh, mm. And it was interesting. Um, and so around five years, I started looking uh, for a position in-house <laughs> in a Somewhere communications else. company. All right. So this was a pivotal year, 1986. You're five years mm-hmm. at this law firm, but starting to do some communications work. And I guess one of the companies that you were doing some work for was this very small, nascent cable company, cable TV company called Black Entertainment Television that at that point really very few people had heard of. Like at that time, what did you, like were you watching BET? Were you, was it available like on your cable service? No. In D.C. there was no cable service. Wow. In fact, that's one of the um, um, clients I worked for um, at Steptoe was when Bob Johnson, who had founded BET, was also trying to get the cable franchise for DC. Mm. So I was working for this client and I had never seen the programming. And no one had heard of it, especially <laughs> no one at my firm. firm. And, and so what, what, what was the point where you thought, you know what, this is what I want to do. I think I want to be a lawyer for these guys. How did that happen? Well, I worked for a partner named Tyrone Brown, who used to be a former FCC um, commissioner. Um, And then one day I was down with Ty Brown, uh, the partner from Steptoe and Johnson and Bob Johnson, and we were down for city council hearings uh, arguing that District Cablevision should get the cable franchise. And anyway, Ty Brown had to go back to work. And so Bob Johnson asked me if I'd like to go to lunch. And during the uh, lunch, he asked me, would I consider um, coming over to work at BET? And when Bob said that to me, I just, it clicked in my head that this would be the ideal job. You know, I, I had to hold back my excitement. I was like, well, yeah, because I knew, wow. you know, if you're going to have to negotiate, you don't look too excited. So I said, I, you know, I would consider that. Yeah. But inside my head, I was jumping up and down. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, was Saying, sort of a, it was sort of a gamble at that time because, I mean, I think when you joined in 86, I mean, this was an unknown company. It had 80 employees. It was, it was I think, maybe just barely breaking even. Correct. Uh, and it wasn't even on television in most places. Tell me what BET was like at that time. What do you remember about BET in 1986? Well, what I remember is that the mission of the company really resonated with me. The fact that hmm. we wanted to provide programming to this community and 
not only programming, but news and public affairs. And all of a sudden, as I said, this just seemed like it was perfectly made for me. You know, it was a way for me to give back. It was a way for me to work for a Black-owned company. I had grown up with Motown and Ebony and Essence and Jet, so I knew how important uh, these Black brands were. And so I, I just loved the mission of the company. I didn't know whether it was going to be successful or not. As you said, it, it was barely break even. Yeah. Um, but it seemed like it was it it had a a lane. So I mean, it sounds like it was a an incredibly exciting time. Like, did it feel at the time like you were you were building something that had the potential to be huge? did feel like that. Um, we were busy all the time because I was the only uh, lawyer in-house. Between the program and between the cable deals, between uh, talent deals, you know, I was very busy. Bob is, is a great leader and a visionary and very charismatic uh, and a great salesperson. He was a great salesman. He was BET personified. And um, he was always looking for opportunities for BET, um, not just on the programming side, but also in other businesses we could get into where the brand would work. <laughs> so, yeah, it was an incredibly exciting time. I mean, it was the sky was the limit. We were growing by leaps and bounds. You know, at first we were giving the program away for free. Um, then we charged three cent a subscriber. Then we charged 10 cent a subscriber. So, and it was a young group of executives reporting to Bob. Hmm. Uh, and the company was still small. We finally opened the LA office and then a New York office. Uh, and everyone was very committed to the mission of the company. And that's what I loved about it. Yeah. Um, you know, there was there was a pride of ownership and a pride of what we were doing. Did you did you see yourself already at that in that in those early days, the late eighties, as maybe maybe one day running the company? Was that an ambition you had or or not quite yet? That was not an, an, an ambition I had. It was not ever even a thought. <laughs> I thought Bob Johnson would be there forever. <laughs> I was very happy with that. And as I started doing more business um, deals and, and representing the, the company in that way, I was enjoying that. Um, I actually ran our magazine division, which I loved uh, because of the creative side. You know, there was art involved and layout and design and editorial. Um, So I ran that in addition to being general counsel. So at one point I had so many titles. It was, you know, it was a little ridiculous because I was doing the legal work and business things. Um, And so, you know, my goal at that point was to get out of the legal work. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah. And so I asked Bob uh, Johnson on many occasions, could I hire a general counsel mm-hmm. and, um, you know, focus on the magazines? And he said, no, no, no. I want you as my lawyer. You know, I don't trust anyone else. And um, so we went back and forth on that for a couple of years. And yeah. then um, he asked me to be uh, chief operating officer. And you know, he had six or seven direct reports. He had never talked about uh, creating a new position of COO. So it caught me completely by surprise. And I was 
doubly surprised that he asked me because <laughs> I saw myself again as lawyer slash business person, hmm. um, but not as a manager. Yeah. And, you know, that was the first time that running the company ever entered my mind. And the only yeah. reason it entered my mind is because people started treating me that way. Huh. As soon as he named me a COO, the world assumed I was the heir apparent. And uh, from then on out, it just felt like uh, full steam ahead. Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Most of us spend our days wondering where the time has gone, wishing we had just one more hour in the day to go for a run, take a nap, read a book, be more present for a friend, or all of the above. And the best way to make sure there's time for what's important is to, well, spend the time figuring out what that is. Therapy can help you figure out what's important so you can spend more of your life doing it. Therapy isn't just for those who have experienced trauma. It's also so helpful for learning how to set boundaries and empowering you to become the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, try BetterHelp. It's convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule, and totally online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire so you can get matched with a licensed therapist. And if you're not totally connecting, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com wisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash wisdom. I guess, I guess one of the, the, the really big turning points for BET, certainly um, in its first decade, was a decision to go public, to go out and sell shares. And, um, yes. And you were, uh, you played a key role in this, right? I mean, what did you, what did you do to, um, to get this set up? Because BET would become the first black-owned company to be publicly traded. I mean, this is a big deal. Yes. On the New York Stock Exchange, it was a very big deal. And um, it was, was, uh, as far as I recall, I want to say about a 10-month process from Mm -hmm. when we decided to do it to the day we were standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, um, seeing the, the stock price rise and uh, having a very successful um, IPO. But at the time, I was still general counsel. So, you know, my name was uh, <laughs> was on everything. Yes, I mean, it was amazing. I think it has, it, 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 I mean, BET had this incredible opening day. When it, like, it, it went, started at 17, went up to 25, closed at 23 and a half. Correct. I mean, it was, you know, it did really well. But, but I guess yeah. within the first year, uh, of being a publicly traded company, there started to be some problems, right? The stock price started to go down. Mm-hmm. Wall Street started getting nervous. Um, there were questions about how many subscribers BET had, and the stock price was just getting battered and battered. What What do you remember about that time? Um, 
at at BT. I mean, was there was there mm-hmm. concern about what what that was going to mean for the viability of the company? There was never concern about the viability of the company. There was concern about how quickly we would get control of being a public publicly traded company. Hmm. And that was a whole whole new process for us, you know, from the legal side and the financial side. And, you know, we hired an investor relations firm and we had to get used to quarterly earnings and quarterly reporting and dealing with analysts. Um, so, it, you know, I, I chalk it up to us learning the process and, you know, making a few missteps, but it was never, never um, an issue with the viability of the company. So during this time, when, when you're a public company, um, you are named the COO and, and eventually president of BT Holdings. And this is a big, this big portfolio. Like you now are the operations mm-hmm. chief of this company. I mean, essentially, Bob, as the CEO, is kind of offering the vision and as the ambassador to the company. But you're actually really running the place, right? Right. Hmm. Did you feel like there was a steep learning curve for you to figure out how to to manage people and how to keep you know the operations going, or or did you just kind of understand how to do it intuitively? Uh, it was a steep learning curve. Uh, I, I knew a lot about the company because I was the person who handled all the uh, legal issues. I was doing working on most of the business deals. So there was a big chunk of the company that I had been working on for a long time. But as I mentioned earlier, I'd never done programming. I never made a decision on uh, what programming to put on the air. I never sold advertising. And all the people that now reported to me had reported to Bob Johnson before. Wow. And that was a change. And, you know, I had to learn who, to manage executives who the day before were my good friends. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, yeah. uh, they were my direct reports. And, you know, a lot of people were there because of Bob. So, you know, executives had to say, okay, you know, am I going to buy into Deb's vision? Right. Uh, and what does this mean? You know, how long is Bob going to be here? And to get the executives to get used to di- reporting directly to me, Bob had to step back, you know, yeah. because if he gave, if he came to the meetings, our senior team meetings, they would just look to him for answers. Right. Th- this is... There's an important um, lesson here that that I think it's it's important for us to pause and kind of reflect on it because I've read in previous interviews you've you've given about how this was actually a really obviously a pivotal moment you were made the mm-hmm. COO but that you were asked by Bob to become COO and and apparently later on in your career you would find out that there were many men male executives who were lobbying for the job that you were actually asked to do because i guess you felt like you know i i'm not necessarily ready to do something like this which which you you know upon reflection you realize that this is very much a dynamic that tends to affect women executives in the workplace that they don't feel ready and men are just more you know incredibly overconfident right and so this was a moment where you kind of didn't step up, but in hindsight, almost regretted not having even done that yourself. Right. Well, I would say, first of all, I didn't know there was a position to be had. Yeah. <laughs> I never thought Bob would give up any control of BET as long as he was there. So I thought it was interesting that 
the, the several men who had asked for the position even knew that there was a possibility. But you're right. Um, from my experience, I was no different from some of the other men who had maybe focused on ad sales or programming or whatever. They had a sliver of the company. So in order for them to step up and be COO, they would have a, a steep learning curve also. It's like none of us, you know, had seen all of the company except Bob. So any of us that stepped up to be second in command and to manage all the departments would have had a steep learning curve. So I think it does point to the fact that women underestimate their potential and that at companies, sometimes men are promoted on potential and women are promoted on, you know, experience. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's an issue that, that women have started to try to overcome, to ask for promotions, to ask for more experience, to be willing to step into a, a new position, even if you're not 100 percent ready, mm. and to understand that there's a learning curve. So, yes, it is an in, um, uh, issue in uh, corporate America. I mean, th- this, uh, this lesson applies of course, to women, but also to men, to anyone really who has self-doubt, right? Because essentially Mm -hmm. what you're saying is, look, the only way to move ahead and to grow is to test your comfort zone. And that often means that you you have to do jobs that you in your heart may feel like you're not fully ready for. Mm -hmm. You may have to just figure it out fast. Right. It's on the job learning. And you didn't, you didn't feel ready to be COO, I guess. That's true. And I felt I had to learn um, learn the job while doing the job. Yeah. And one of the ways I did that was by serving on corporate boards and learning how other CEOs and COOs did it. Hmm. I hadn't gone to business school. Um, I didn't know a lot about management. So I had to learn that. Um, and I did it by watching others by spending time with the executives that reported to me and learning their areas mm-hmm. and just, you know, managing. You had all these incredible credentials. You, you had two Harvard degrees and you were, a, uh, you know, at this prestigious law firm and you'd already been at BET for nine years. And yet you still, it's, I, I, I mean, I love I love that, that idea that you had self-doubt because it, it, it speaks to you know, it speaks to the kind of person you are, that that really you weren't overconfident. You felt like you had so much to learn. And I'm, I'm wondering, was, was one of the challenges for you once you got that big leadership position, the idea that you would essentially be telling people what they needed to do, that there would be all these people who were kind of seeking your approval and, and maybe you weren't entirely comfortable with that yet? Um, yes. I think I approached management... Um, like a judge would a- approach making uh-huh. a decision. Yeah. You know, I brought my legal training to bear. So we would have senior team meetings and, you know, I would hear people out and take it under advisement and try to come back a week later with the decision. And early on, I found out that didn't work. <laughs> Things yeah. were moving too quickly. If I didn't make a clear decision that executives would go back and do whatever they wanted to do. Uh, And especially because this was not my team. 
you know, I had not hired these um, sure. executives. So, you know, some were very supportive and others were not. And I had to figure that out. And I had to figure out how I put my own team together. And I learned you can't always make decisions by consensus. And again, sometimes people point to that as a difference in male and female leadership. Yeah. That women want to have consensus. They want everybody to be happy. They want everyone to leave the room feeling like, you know, they have a stake. Yeah. And that doesn't happen in corporate America. You know, you you get the facts, you make a decision, and some people are going to leave that room unhappy. Yeah. And, you know, what you hope for is that they at least support you <laughs> publicly and in the company. Yeah. So Bob, like, from what I know in my interactions with him, he didn't really care if people liked him or not. Like, he, he was making right. decisions and he, you know, but the other side to it is men are evaluated differently than women, right? A male leader who doesn't care what people think of him and just hard-charging is often described as a decisive, hard-charging leader. Mm-hmm. Women leaders who, you know, make decisions and don't worry about what people think of them are described in a completely different way. We know the words people use yeah. for women leaders. Right. I don't know. Did you? Was it hard for you to kind of get your head around the idea that some people wouldn't like you? You would make decisions that would upset people. Did it take a while for you to get comfortable with that? Yes, it took quite a while. And, um, you know, looking back on it, I was raised to be a nice girl. Yeah. I was raised to be do what my father said. You know, I was raised to be nice. And I remember when I first was appointed as COO, most of the flowers and cards I got were said, we are so happy to see a nice person at this position. Oh, yeah. And so it's that word, you know, nice You can be humble, you can give back, you can be compassionate. I mean, there are a lot of things you can do within that CEO role, but you also have to understand that your job is to serve the shareholders and and create uh, profit for them and run the company. Yeah. Um, The company was sold to Viacom for like $3 billion in 2000. Um, all of a sudden, Viacom becomes the uh, parent company, and Bob Johnson didn't didn't stay on for that much longer um, because well, five years. Five years. He was a at this point a billionaire. He was the first African American billionaire um, mm-hmm. in history, mm-hmm. and and eventually uh, by June of two thousand five, you were made CEO of BET. I I, I I've read that you you've described being CEO as a lonely job. But I'm also wondering, and I've had this, I've had this conversation with other CEOs. You know, there's no, there's no playbook, right? I mean, you could read biographies or you could read business books by other CEOs, but there really is no, there's no manual for how to do it, right? So, right. What, what was your? I mean, you had already had a decade of being COO. Was that enough to to get you ready to have the top job? Was that, was that? Was that what you needed? When you when you became CEO, did you feel like, yep, I'm ready for this one? Yeah. Um, ten years was more than enough. <laughs> and as I looked at other companies, I saw that that was much longer than most COOs had. Yeah. Truly, I had a steep learning curve. You know, I learned it. I would say after five, six years, I was more than ready to be CEO. And it was, it was a um, struggle 
to have both of us there. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Because Bob had stepped back from yeah. day to day. I had day to day, but he was still there and he could veto anything I said or he could change things at the last minute. Um, and and that was really a struggle. It, it, it was really time earlier on for me to take over, if I was going to take over. This is a, a little bit of a sensitive question because Bob obviously was a, a mentor and he was the person you were watching lead the company. When you became CEO, did you almost want to lead in a completely different way from him, or did you want to take the best of what he did and continue on in that in that way? Hmm, that's a great question. I wanted to take the best of him and what he had built at BET and what I had learned from him. But at the same time, I wanted to leave my own mark yeah. and create my own legacy. First of all, because I'm a woman and I brought different things to the table. I mean, we were both African-American, so it wasn't as much about race. But it was about being a woman, managing differently, uh, figuring out what things were important to me, what my values were. So I wanted to continue his legacy, but I wanted to build upon that and, um, and try to make the company better. I remember one of my first uh, issues uh, after Bob left, the head of HR came to me and asked if we were going to uh, observe Bring Your Daughter to Work Day. Mm-hmm. And we had never done that before. And so my first reaction was, well, no, that's not something we do. And, you know, I heard myself answering the question, I sounded just like Bob. And then I went home and thought about it overnight. And I was like, well, you know, I'm a woman. This is important to me. Yeah, we should do this. So the next day I called the head of HR back and I said, yes, we're going to do it. Mm. But I saw that as a, uh, a point where I had to, to let people know I was going to manage differently. You know, it wasn't going to be business as usual. One of the criticisms of BT under Bob's leadership, um, particularly among influential African-American intellectuals and writers, was that, you know, BET was was too lowbrow or vulgar or it wasn't it wasn't presenting an authentic African-American experience. And one of the things that early on you you tried to do was to really create, you know, a variety of, I guess, programming that would be, let's just say, more serious. For example, you 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 worked on, on a show called Meet the Faith, which was a, a, disc, a political program, social issues. But I, I guess that as you kind of tried to introduce more highbrow programming, it actually had a, an impact on ratings. Yes. Um, well, I would say um, when Bob was running the company, the company was very young and we didn't have a lot of resources. Yeah. So Bob's goal was to make the company profitable. And I remember he used to always say, you know, don't get carried away by you know, Hollywood or programming goals or, you know, we didn't we weren't even rated at the time. So when I took over, um, we had been part of Viacom for about four years. We had more resources, and it became clear that cable networks were no longer retransmission networks. They weren't just buying programming and airing it. They were getting into original programming. So it was the, per- the right time for us to do more original programming. So um, as I took over as CEO, people started saying, well, what's your vision? How do you want to make BET different? 
Um, and I realized that original programming was going to be important to our future, that we were being rated. We had competitors by this time, I think TV One. Even um, what they called mainstream networks were doing more black programming. And I always say being black is not a brand. <laughs> mm. It's what we were, and that worked for many years. But at this point, it was time to come up with a brand that we could stand behind and do original programming. And I wouldn't say uh, necessarily it was more highbrow. It was more uh, authentic. It was produced by us, for yeah. us. It resonated with the audience. They never thought we were going to be a real network until we created our own sitcoms and dramas. Yeah. So that's what we did. I guess, I mean, pretty soon after you became CEO, um, you became the target of protests. There was a, a prominent <laughs> minister in Maryland. Um, he, you know, just, he, he did not like the content, uh, some of the content on, on the on the network, and and he would right. organize protests in front of your house. Um, mm -hmm. Was that? I mean, I, I'm just thinking of, of you having grown up in Greensboro in a segregated community, watching this injustice, going to college and law school with a sense of like, I am going to make a difference, and then, you know, being the target of protests from a prominent, you know, figure in in the in the community. Was that was that painful for you? It was very painful, um, and it took me by surprise. Um, you know, there weren't any protesters there when Bob Johnson was there, and I was like, why all of a sudden has this minister in Maryland decided he does not like hip-hop music, and he's going to bring protesters to my house? So he was busing his uh, congregation down to my house every Saturday for about oh, seven wow. months. What were they protesting? What didn't they want on BET? Well, uh, I met with the minister before he started the protest, and he told me if I took off three music videos, that he would not protest. What were the? What, do you remember what the videos were? Like what? What artists? The only one I really remember was one by Little Wayne, mm. which was called Little Bag Boy or mm. something. Well, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I'm a First Amendment <laughs> right advocate. My feeling was if I took off those three videos. This month, he'd be back next month with yeah. three more. And I had a standards and practices committee made up of executives that worked for me, that made decisions every day on what we put on the air and what we didn't. We sent a lot of videos back to labels to read, you know, edit, to take certain words out. And this was all really because of, of hip-hop music. You know, when BET first got into videos, it was R&B. You know, it was Patti LaBelle mm -hmm. and Aretha Franklin and no one... Earth, Wind, and Fire. No one was upset about that. But as hip-hop music became more popular, and we, you know, the programming at BET was like 60% music videos. We had like four or five yeah. different music video shows. So as it became more uh, hip-hop, you know, there were a lot more questions about the sexual innuendos, the violence, you know, we used to blur out guns. And, you know, my view was we made the best decisions we could as a company. And mm. if he didn't agree with it, I was, I was like, I'm running the company, not him. <laughs> and my viewers tell me day to day, I get ratings every day. 
that tell me what they watched and what they didn't like. Yeah. So, you know, I, I refused to take off the videos, and he kept coming back for eight months, seven months. Seven so months. it was fair. And I'm sitting here saying, I'm trying to do the right thing. As you said, I grew up in the black community. I care about the black community. I'm a Harvard-educated lawyer. Why is are these people out here, you know, protesting? Mm. And it was right at the beginning of the push I had for more original programming. Yeah. So I couldn't say we're doing this yet. It was in the works. But as our audience saw what we were doing and we had this new brand strategy, which was to respect, reflect, and elevate our audience, you know, I had more um, more supporters. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's why he eventually and his congregation eventually disappeared. I mean, did you, did you, when you had to make difficult decisions about programming or about personnel or when you had to deal with, with controversy from, from viewers, were there people that you could talk to, people that you trusted and relied on? I mean, even though you're the CEO and everyone's looking to you, who did you look to? Who who was like who was your Yoda? Yeah, well, you know, I think that's why they say the CEO um, position is a very lonely one. Yeah, um, there weren't a lot of people I could talk to. I mean, I had good personal friends um, that I could vent to <laughs> that weren't necessarily in the business. But when it came down to it, you know, you had to rely on yourself. Uh, and you had to trust yourself. And you know what I found out as a matter um, through that protest, um, that the buck stopped with me. Yeah. There was no one who ran to my defense during that time. The artists didn't show up at my house to protest against the protesters. You know, they let me suffer through that for seven months yeah. alone. You know, some of the black leaders didn't stand up to support me. So I felt very alone, and I realized that this was my network. I was going to get the blame when something went wrong. I got the the accolades when we did something right, and I was going to make the decisions in my best uh, judgment. You know, I, I read that you one of the things that you you wished you had, would have done earlier. You say the description you used w- was um, listening to your own voice. That it took you a long time to mm-hmm. really listen to your own instincts and judgment. That, and I guess when when you took over as CEO of BT, people said to you, "Hey, don't don't screw this up. Don't mess up the business model." Which is, um, I mean, God, you know, to <laughs> to hear that from people <laughs> as you take over. Um, so if you were to go back in time and start that role again, CEO of BET, um, how would you have convinced yourself to listen to your own voice faster? I think the way I would have done it is to have stopped trying to be a consensus builder much Mm. earlier. Mm. You know, just learn to trust my own views. Um, I mean, there are always things you have to take account. If your advertising, your head of advertising sales says, this client doesn't like something, and if we do it, we're going to lose a client, you have to take that into account. But, you know, as I said before, you can't make everyone happy. And Bob Johnson is the one who said to me, don't mess the business model up mm-hmm. as he was walking out the door. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a heavy, <laughs> that's a, that's a heavy that's goal a right there. Yeah. 
But people realize that how important BET is, how much work it took to, you know, change the type of programming, and they're appreciative. I mean, I have women that come up to me and say, 60-year-old women, that say, can I just hug you? Can I just hug you for what you did? And so that is so meaningful to me, and I'm so appreciative that a lot of people recognize um, what I was able to accomplish. Yeah. Debbie, I'm I'm curious about when you reflect on your role, right, and what you represent. Like, you think about somebody like President Obama and Michelle Obama, like, the Mm -hmm. effect of of what they represent won't even be felt for decades because we will have a generation of young people, African-American men and women, people of color, and, and, and also white, young white people who are inspired by them and what they represented who will change the world in the future. And, and, and in 20 years, mm-hmm. somebody's going to say it was, it was that family. And, and you had this job that inspired people because of not just because of the job you did, but because of what you represented. And so today, like you could look at, you know, a, a young African-American leader and you can say, well, you know, you can, there are all these opportunities and, and all these mm-hmm. great companies you work for. But the reality is I think there are just three of the Fortune 500 companies are today run by African-American CEOs or men. Um, and and that's a decline from ten years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you what do you think is going on? Well, I think um, that's a complicated question. Um, but my, my view is, you know, we've been focused on dem- diversity for a long time and getting mm-hmm. people through the door, people of color and women. And I think. We just have to do more on the inclusion side and making sure that companies retain uh, women of color and that they are given opportunities and that they have mentors. And I think we've had too few uh, role models. So I think companies have to really focus more and CEOs have to focus more on, am I giving women and women of color the same opportunities as everyone else? I spoke to the advertising um, industry. I was inducted to the Hall of Fame. And I looked Mm -hmm. around that room and it's still mostly white men. And that just should not be accepted in this day and time. We need more women on boards. We need more people of color on boards. We need to continue to hold companies' feet to the fire to say, we need more women. We need more people of color. We need more women of color. And that's one reason I started Leading Women Defined 10 years ago, is to bring prominent African-American women together and and talk about their issues because it's lonely at the top. We all have issues. Um, and once you get further up in a company or in an organization, you need someone to talk to. And that conference um, has turned into something magical. And the next phase of my life is, is going to be devoted to making sure we give women of color the resources and training they need to go further in the corporate environment and making sure that they're part of that power structure, that they get the stock options and own a piece of the company, that they're able to create wealth for themselves and their family, that they're in boardrooms. I mean, I've been on corporate boards for 20 years and companies have been talking for 20 years about getting more women on boards and more people of color and it's still an issue. 
I have one last question for you, Debbie. Um, and I think I know the answer to this, but I ask this anyway of everyone on the show. Do you, do you think that you were born a leader or to be a leader with leadership skills, or do you think you, you it's something that came to you and you had to learn and figure out how to how to, how to do it? Mm. I think, looking back, that I was born with certain leadership qualities. Others I had to learn. The other um, issue I had was I was a born introvert. Hmm. So to be a leader, you have to be out there in front hmm. and take the spotlight yeah. and take the yeah. be able to speak in front of uh, groups and um that was just something I was never comfortable with, and I had to learn to do that. You know, the first couple of times I did it, my voice quivered, <laughs> but I had to learn to do it. So I had to overcome that part. I had to overcome the tendency to want to stay in the background and listen to my inner voice and say, it's important for you to speak up. You have something important to say, and you're a leader. And people are going to follow you, and they're going to respect you and appreciate you, and you can't sit in the back of the class all the time. You know, when I went to Harvard Law School and they call on you with the Socratic method, I was a nervous wreck. I just wanted to take my turtleneck and put it over (laughs) my entire head. It was not something I felt comfortable with, standing up in front of 150 other students arguing a case. But I had to learn to do it. And so so to answer your question, I think, you know, both are true. I was born with some of it. I was born to, I think, make a difference and uh, give back and, and be a leader. But I had to overcome um, some other personal traits in order to really accomplish what I want to accomplish. That's Deborah Lee, former CEO of BET. Deborah stepped down as CEO of BET last year after 32 years. In 2016, The Hollywood Reporter named her one of the 100 most powerful women in entertainment. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. Our music was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary Media and Built-in Productions. <laughs>